Blog Talk Radio. Chip, always great to be in the red zone. Hope everybody's doing well out there. College football, gosh, uh, we are already smack dab in the middle of the season. It's it's going to be over before we know it. It is going to be over before we know it. And uh, we talked uh, we talked a couple weeks ago, and it looked like it was going to be a slow weekend. That you know, it it always turns out. It seems both in uh, both mm-hmm. on Saturdays and on Sundays. In some cases, on Thursdays and Mondays. That, um, you know, one thing is for sure about football season, both in college athletics and in professional sports, and that is to expect the unexpected. Kip, let's get right to it because we've got about 30, 35 minutes to talk about a very action-packed week in the world of sports. Let's start with the Alabama Crimson Tide down at College Station this week. Um, really competitive game uh, in College Station. Uh, Bama goes on the road to Texas A&M. Uh, Texas A&M uh, came into the game a 4-1 and team, you know, but they had that disastrous game one debacle just – of 31 points to UCLA, where they completely fell flat, ended up um, ended up coming out of that game on the short end of the stick after blowing such a big lead. It's tough for a team to recover after that, Kip, but uh, Texas A&M went on to win the next four games. And then uh, when Alabama came into town, uh, they certainly held their own against a Crimson Tide team that looked as good as they possibly could have looked the two weeks prior uh, um, in uh, games against uh, against Vanderbilt uh, and against Old Miss. Uh, Texas A&M ends up walking away, not with the win, but only a 27-19 defeat. Um, they say there are no moral victories in sports. I have to disagree, Kip. I think if you're a Texas A&M Aggie football fan, you had a moral victory Saturday night. What do you think about the game in College Station? Well, uh, on my show Sunday, the morning after on WJOX here in Birmingham, you would have thought that Alabama had suffered a humiliating defeat. Uh, <laughs> you talk about people just 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 completely bummed out by what they've seen, and uh, there are, there was a lot of criticism for the Alabama offense and uh, and different. Uh, poor Robert Foster, the uh, Sophomore receiver had a, just a brutal night when Calvin Ridley was banged up. Jalen Hurts tried to go to him a couple times. He had two blatant drops and a loss of fumble. Um, so he has fallen upon disfavor in the heart of Dixie. Um, but uh, all in all, people were just very discouraged that uh, the game uh, that went the way it did. I, I even read some negative tweets at halftime when Alabama was up 17-3. to This was an SEC road game against uh, – in my mind, the fourth best team in the conference, and uh, everybody's acting like it's the end of the world. So Alabama fans are just a little bit spoiled 
Uh, I didn't think they were ever in danger of losing the game. I thought A&M would give them their very best shot. If I'm an Aggie fan today, though, Chip, what I'm really excited about is I thought the quarterback, Mond, really, really grew up in that game and uh, and really seized that, that position. Uh, I mean, in the second half, he played with confidence. I mean, he is playing against uh, arguably uh, one of the two or three best defenses in the country and got some things done. The uh, spectacular scramble on the touchdown to Christian Kirk was just unbelievable. Houdini-like, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. Um, and the kid just really grew up. I think he's 18 years old, true freshman. Uh, I, I think if you're a Texas A&M fan, you've got to feel good that your defense really stuffed Alabama's running game for the most part, and your quarterback uh, grew up right before your eyes. Kip, I tell you, you mentioned Kellen Mond. I was going to mention that. Uh, uh, Kellen Mond was originally a Baylor commit. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, when uh, everything happened at Baylor a year and a half ago with Art Bryles and the program and all the controversy surrounding, uh, you know, sweeping under the rug, sexual assault allegations, that program just disintegrated, completely disintegrated. Kellen Mond went back out, uh, back out on the market. And um, he was, uh, my son, when he was doing photo edits, was uh, following on, on Instagram and was able to put together a, uh, a graphic photo image for Kellen Mond right before he committed to Texas A&M. So I had about a 48-hour notice of, uh, of Mond's commitment to A&M. And then IMG Academy, which is where Kellen Mond went to play in Florida the final year uh, in high school, played Grayson High School just outside of Metro Atlanta in uh, Gwinnett County. Uh, quarterback uh, played for Grayson last year by the name of Chase Bryce, who is now on full scholarship at Clemson. So uh, my son and I went to go watch that game, and um, and we saw Kellen Mond. And uh, I tell you, um, I knew uh, a year ago on um, you know on the high school football field at Grayson, he, even though he, he's not a big guy, um, man, he is. Uh, he's a competitor. He's gritty. He's an athlete. Very mobile. Uh, he's corkscrew mobile, like sh- kind of a, like a Shea Patterson type. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think he's a little quicker than Shea Patterson is. And you're exactly right. Uh, I didn't expect Kellen Mond to start his first year at Texas A&M, but it certainly was interesting. No less than a year ago, he's playing a. Uh, uh, you know, I'm watching him play against um, a, a pretty good high school defense in Grayson, and then no less than a year later. Uh, he is uh, the starting quarterback in the SEC against the Alabama Crimson Tide. Uh, a little bit, a uh, little bit different, a uh, uh, little bit uh, different bar for him to, uh, um, you know, to, to kind of set and to kind of jump over. But uh, I tell you, I was hoping that kid would come to Auburn. We were his uh, final three choices. We're happy with the growth of Jared Stidham. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I couldn't agree with you more, Kev. I think if you're Texas A&M, you got to be really, really happy with the development of your quarterback. And even though uh, Texas A&M fell on the short end of the stick on Saturday night, to get out is only uh, losing by eight points against Alabama. Uh, maybe one of the better teams that Nick Saban's had. I know that's frightening to think about. Um, but nonetheless, they have to feel pretty good about themselves uh, as they um, uh, as they tackle the rest of the season. A- at the same time, uh, I don't know that it ever. I don't know that you ever get over a 31 point uh, comeback defeat that they suffered in Week One. That being said, certainly looks like they have. Can you imagine had they won that game, Kip, and they came into this game five and zero and only lost to Alabama by eight points? 
think Texas A&M would find themselves probably in the top ten, uh, but not the case. That that opening game against UCLA has uh, has big, big, big consequences. Let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Auburn Tigers, who this weekend uh, welcomed after the thrashing that Old Miss took the week before. Um, at Brian Denny Stadium, welcomed in Old Miss. I was a little nervous about the game, Kip. I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't think Old Miss was as bad as they looked uh, when they played Alabama. But uh, I got to tell you, in the first half, they did look as bad as they looked <laughs> when they played Alabama. Uh, I think the score at halftime was 35 to three. Um, Old Miss uh, came back and uh, played better in the second half. It, it gives them something to build upon for the rest of the season. I think the final score was 44 to 23. But I tell you, Kip, the more and more I watch these games in the SEC, the more and more I'm convinced, and we talked about it last year, that the SEC is two and a half deep this year, maybe three deep, at most three and a half deep. But you've got Alabama, then you've got Georgia, I don't think too far behind, and I want to get ahead of myself. And then you have Auburn, I think, uh, quite a bit of distance behind right now. But certainly they play Georgia at home in a few weeks. And Auburn goes on the road and plays three conference games here with the week off in between the Arkansas and Texas A&M game. But, uh, man, I tell you, if Auburn can win two out of the next three on the road or, you know, God forbid, run the table, can you imagine the atmosphere at Jordan-Hare Stadium in November when Georgia comes in. I can certainly – I can assure you that game day, Kip uh, Lee Corso and the boys will be there. But uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about this Auburn team. I tell you, I uh, I was as impressed with Shea Patterson as I've ever been. He's got nothing to work with at Ole Miss. Um, uh, the play calling's terrible. He's got nobody that can catch the ball. Nobody can block for him. I mean, everything that they got, he got completely on his own. You hate it that the mm-hmm. kid uh, went there, but he committed to Old Miss even after it was fairly obvious that Old Miss was under uh, NCAA investigation. Kip, give us your thoughts on Auburn Ole Miss this past weekend. Well, I, it, you know, I said on a couple of different uh, programs last week that uh, the thought of coming back to Alabama after the trip to Tuscaloosa had just been a just a thrilling pr- prospect for the entire Ole Miss uh, contingent. Uh, and the ride to Auburn uh, proved to be just as painful. I mean, as you said, they had a better second half, um, but still, the uh, the 35 to three beat down in the first half was thorough. I made a joke on my show that um, Matt Luke, the head coach of Ole Miss, if he was offered an all expense paid two weeks at uh, uh, any golf resort, uh, high rise hotel here in Alabama, he would he would probably turn it down right now. Uh, just don't don't <laughs> want to cross the right. board anymore. He had enough. Um, I thought Auburn really looked good on on Saturday, and I know you have to uh, you have to step you have to take that. Uh, recuse yourself from testimony on Auburn's prowess, but uh, uh, I declared them uh, pretty much on, on equal, on equal footing with Georgia last week. I think both teams are, are uh, definitely uh, in the, in the very, uh, very good category. Um, Both of them have fantastic defenses. They're going to keep them in any game they play. Um, And Georgia, maybe with the stable of running backs, uh, as opposed to carry on Johnson at this point, uh, from the running back position being a little bit of a one-man band. Uh, but the quarterbacks are comparable. Uh, you know, Stidham arguably is a is is the more experienced uh, signal caller. 
the receiving core, I think uh, Georgia's receiving core is really starting to make some progress, but Auburn's is arguably uh, probably a little bit ahead there. Offensive line-wise, pretty comparable. So I I think the teams are pretty similar, and uh, it's going to be such a cool thing uh, if everything goes according to Hoyle, and you just mentioned it, Auburn has a, a brutal stretch here. Uh, of going to LSU, Texas A&M, and Arkansas, all three games on the road. Um, any one of those could be a potential stumbling block. I know they have better personnel, in my opinion, than any of those teams. But if they do come out of that unscathed, that game November 11th, because I don't think Georgia's going to have problems with Florida. I just don't think this Florida team, with all the suspensions and everything that they've got going on, they're just not a very good football team. And uh, they, they won a couple games with smoke and mirrors, and uh, it came back to bite them uh, uh, in the swamp this past uh, Saturday. But uh, the point is that that Georgia-Auburn game is going to be fantastic, and it really sets up a de facto round-robin tournament if it plays out, which is going to be amazing, with Alabama coming just two weeks later to Auburn. And then, of course, the SEC championship game, Georgia looks like, even with a loss down on the plains, would probably stroll to the East Division title, so they'll be waiting for the winner of that uh, the Iron Bowl, and it would either be Alabama completing the true round robin or Auburn getting a, a, a rematch with the Dogs just three weeks later. So either prospect, pretty exciting uh, for the SEC if it plays out that way. Really exciting, Kip. Let me uh, let's kind of pivot, talk a little bit about the game this weekend. Auburn goes to at LSU. Look. And uh, LSU has always been a difficult place to play. Sands a week and a half ago uh, when Troy came in. But uh, Auburn's not had a lot of luck there. Here's a fascinating statistic, Kip, that I didn't know, and I'm going to give you this statistic courtesy of Kyle Wingfield from the Atlanta Journal and Constitution who shared this with me just before this podcast started, and I thought I would share it to get your thoughts on on, um, on a preview, per se, of what's going to happen this weekend down at Death Valley FBS football teams from the state of Alabama at LSU since the year 2000. The Alabama Crimson Tide are five and four in Death Valley. Troy is one and two. UAB is one and one, and the Auburn Tigers Kip are zero and eight since the year oh, 2000. Wow. Auburn, UAB, and Troy have all won games at Death Valley. Auburn has not. Is this finally the year, Kip, that Auburn gets a win against LSU in Baton Rouge? I say it is the year. I think Auburn is playing with a lot of confidence right now. I I, I feel really good about their defense going into that game and, and stopping what LSU tries to do. Uh, Darius Geis's health and well-being is a huge key for LSU. I thought he was maybe maybe 75% against Florida. Maybe he'll be healthier this week. That would certainly help them. Etling, the quarterback, is just you know average at best. Their receivers uh, are not any 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 group that will really scare you. I just don't think offensively they are very good, and they paid a lot of money to Canada, the offensive coordinator. Uh, a lot of LSU fans were saying, "Oh, he's finally allowed to run his offense in the first half, and that's why they're more effective." Well, Florida made a few adjustments and pretty much just completely stuffed them in the second half. LSU did next to nothing offensively in the second half of the game. Florida's offense was inept enough that all they could do was come back from two scores down, and, of course, a botched extra point ended up blowing up that comeback. So 
Uh, LSU yeah. fortunate to win. I don't. I don't think there's been any magic formula applied by Coach O and and his staff to uh, to revive the Tigers. Any hopes of that is is uh, I think are going to be dashed. Auburn's a better team. Uh, I did not realize they had not won in this century. There, that is an astounding statistic. Oh, and eight. Um, I didn't. I, I I knew it had uh, been a while, Kip. But I didn't realize it had been uh, the entire century. And uh, I didn't realize UAB got a win at one time in Death Valley, but they did. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, um, the, the, uh, the former coach, Watson Brown, engineered that, uh, that shocker for, That's the, right. for UAB Max brother. So, yeah, that was, that was probably, uh, I, I would say, around two, 2004, 2005. Anyway, I, I just think Auburn on paper is the better team. And if they don't beat themselves with mistakes and turnovers – I think their defense holds LSU to a very low score, and if Auburn can just grind out a couple of touchdowns and and uh, and Stidham uh, gets enough protection, uh, I, I love the the deep ball he throws, and I, I think they can hit him with a couple of big plays. I really like the Tigers. The Tigers in the in the blue and orange, not in the sickening yellow. There you go. I like it, Kip. We you talked earlier about the expectations that are set uh, in Tuscaloosa. Unbelievable expectations, and and look, that's where Nick Saban has this program where you know they expect to win every week. Um, they're favored to win every week. The question is, are they going to cover the spread or are they going to win and not cover <laughs> the spread? But you know that's what makes what happened Saturday so unique. Um, as we talked about, it was a win on the road against a four and one team. A team that could have very easily and probably should have been five and one, and Bama goes in and, and wins twenty-seven to nineteen. And as you said, Kip, the game really wasn't that close. A uh, and M got a good touchdown late, taking nothing away from A and M, and they battled and and mm. um, and and they did well. But I don't think the game was that close. And as you said, Alabama was never in jeopardy of losing that game, but. You know, Nick Saban uh, is uh, very calculated <laughs> in his comments to the media anytime he is answering a question at a, at a press conference. And, and, and one of the analogies that he gave after the game was, uh, you know, uh, how bad it is for his team every time the media starts talking about how good they are. And he said it was, quote, like it's like rat poison when the media starts talking uh, good about our football team. And I guess what he's alluding to is, you know, uh, they uh, they did not cover the spread, but they won um, a couple games early in the season. I think Colorado State, Western Kentucky, kind of business-like Alabama wins. They didn't come out and completely dominate. And then when the press started talking about, well, you know, maybe this Alabama team isn't as good as they've been in the past, all of a sudden the um, the lights turned on in Tuscaloosa and they opened up um, uh, probably eight quarters of football, unlike I've ever seen them play consecutively. Unbelievable beatdown against Old Miss and, and Vandy. Not terrible football teams, but not great football teams, but nonetheless. Aaron Rodgers, from, uh, who covers University of North Texas, tweeted something out last night, Kip. He, he tweeted out the ESPN-FPI chances to win the Conference USA title. He has Florida Atlantic at, at uh, number one at 37.3%, <laughs> followed by University of North Texas at 19, Marshall at 13.7, Texas San Antonio at 10, La Tech at 8.3, Southern Miss, Middle Tennessee State, Western Kentucky UAB, they're all down the list. Lane Kiffin last night retweeted that tweet, and he said, quote, 
Please stop media, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is rat poison for our players. Hashtag top ten rushing offense in the country. Hashtag Bama. Hashtag the FAU. Kip, love Lane Kiffin or hate him. Uh, he certainly deserves uh, he certainly deserves troll points. Kudos. Uh, I mean, what did you think when you saw this yesterday, Kip? Yeah, I, I thought that was that was classic. Uh, re- remember, Nick Saban pre- prefaced his remarks, which uh, usually are seemingly targeted at the media. That was a direct message to his players because before the rat poison comment, he said. Well, maybe these guys will start listening to me and not to you guys. So that was basically announcing that this is a message to my team. Stop believing the hype and start uh, being focused and do what we tell you. And, uh, man, that's bad news for Brett Bielma and the poor Arkansas Razorbacks who are limping into town off an embarrassing loss in Columbia, South Carolina. Poor Brett. Uh, I, I, it's, it's not going well in Hogland. But uh, Lane Kiffin gets big style points. Very, very humorous. Uh, I'm still laughing from a couple of years ago when Alabama uh, won one of the uh, early playoff games. Uh, maybe that might have been the very first year. And uh, Saban, who does not let his coaches ever be interviewed, somehow granted uh, Kiffin the opportunity. And in about a two-question interview, one of those running off the field deals, uh, I can't remember who was commentating for ESPN at the time or ABC or whatever game, whoever the on-field person was, but he said to Kiffin, he said, uh, well, I probably need to let you go. Uh, there's probably a, a – you're, you're probably missing a meeting or something because, as you recall, Kiffin had missed a couple of buses that year and gotten in Saban's doghouse. That's right. And, uh, and, and Kiffin's response – Kiffin immediately started looking at his watch, going, what time is it, what time is it? Uh, you know, like he was missing a meeting. It was like five minutes after the game, so – some pretty good comic relief there. Yeah, the little general is subject to some humor going back at him. He probably doesn't think it's very funny, but all the rest of us do. Yeah, no, I don't think he probably thinks it's funny, but my guess is if, if indeed those statistics and those uh, um, uh, the, the percentages that, that ESPN gave on, on – um, a probability to win the conference USA, USA title holds firm. I imagine we'll see more, uh, let's say, cocky tweets from uh, from Lane Kiffin as we go in. <laughs> Kip, let's talk about a couple more football games outside of the Southeastern Conference, outside of the Southeast. Um, Iowa State, what a crazy <laughs> game this weekend. Iowa State 2-2 two and two going into the game this weekend at Oklahoma. They lost to Texas. They lost to Iowa. The only two wins they had were against Northern Iowa and Akron. Um, so they go in not only to Oklahoma 0-2 in the conference and only 2-2 two and two overall, uh, but there was an announcement made the night before the game that Jacob Park, who originally was a Georgia Bulldog quarterback, in case many people don't remember, mm-hmm. Jacob Park, who originally signed with Georgia, then took a year off of football, then played junior college football in, uh, uh, I believe it was in the state of Oklahoma, then ended up uh, this past year in Ames at Iowa State. Jacob Park has been the um, the quarterback all year for the Cyclones. 
And then uh, there's an announcement made about 24 hours before the game that uh, that he has some personal issues that he has to take care of, personal medical issues, whatever that means, and he's not going to be the starting quarterback. So um, uh, it, it certainly looked like uh, coming into uh, Norman on Saturday, uh, it looked like Oklahoma got caught sleeping a little bit, Kip. Um, but, you know, it's hard to make that argument given the fact that they were up 24 24 to 13 at half certainly looked like they had the game in hand, although it's probably a little bit of a sloppy, uh, sloppy half. But uh, a, a quarterback by the name of Kyle Kempt, who was third on the a redshirt senior, a journeyman, started out at Oregon State, then uh, then bounced around uh, junior college, ended up at, at Iowa State, was number three on the depth chart in st- spring practice. Because of injuries to the second-string quarterback, he moves up to number two. Then Jacob Park runs into whatever issue he runs into. And uh, lo and behold, Kyle Kemp, congratulations, your first start. Uh, He threw two passes in his whole college career, uh, and he's been out of high school football since 2012. Kyle Kemp throws two passes since 2012, and uh, he's given the keys to the offense in Norman for an 11 a.m. Central time game, and he only had about 24 hours to prepare. Might have been a good thing, Kip, because he didn't have time to think about it, but lo and behold, he led his team to a victory against, uh, against I believe it was the third or fourth-ranked Oklahoma Sooners, 38-31. to 31. I don't know what the finishing line was on this game, but I think it was in the high 20s. Auburn and Ole Miss was uh, kicked off at the same time. And I honestly believed when I saw that score on the Jumbotron at Jordan Hare that they had the scores backward. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, Kip, give me your thoughts on what happened to Oklahoma this weekend. Yeah, because when Park was announced that he wasn't starting, the line actually jumped uh, right before kickoff, and it was 30.5 to 31 at all the books out in Vegas. So that's a pretty big underdog. Let's put it in perspective. Uh, Alabama and Georgia are both 30-and-a-half-point favorites this weekend against uh, their opponents, Arkansas and Missouri, respectively. So it would be a, it would be the equivalent of one of those games going that way. But even more unlikely, as you said, because of this journeyman quarterback. And uh, But I think, you know, now it's easy to look back and see maybe that there were some cracks in the Oklahoma facade uh, the week before uh, actually, I think they even had a bye week before this game. So it was two weeks ago at Baylor. They were a, almost a 30-point favorite against the Bears and won just a, just a shootout game. Baylor threw for 424 yards on the Oklahoma secondary. And uh, so maybe we've, we've really found the weakness there because if you remember the Ohio State game, Oklahoma State's big signature win in Columbus – JT Barrett was just awful throwing the ball down the field, and that's been a big source of controversy. People that are on the Ohio State bandwagon, uh, you know, if Barrett is put in a position to try to bring his team from behind, there's a lot of questions whether he can do that. So they were not able to exploit what has been coming, obviously, weak part of the Oklahoma team because uh, this the quarterback in Iowa State lit them up for about 350. So basically, you add that up over the last two games against two 30-point underdogs, they have surrendered almost 800 yards passing. So I think the boys at Oklahoma have some little uh, retooling to do because the Sooners have been exposed in the secondary. You are not lying. I mean, uh, um, uh, that one shocked me, and I didn't even see the news beforehand. 
Park had been benched and, and it didn't even know who Kyle Kempt was. I don't know that anybody knew mm, who Kyle was Kempt was before this past weekend, but uh, I can assure you they know in the state of Iowa and the state of Oklahoma. Kemp, let's talk about one more, uh, I don't want to say game, but just really crazy situation as it's developed. I don't, I don't even know if you've seen it because um, – um, most of the story broke today around lunchtime, but um, Oregon State, the Oregon State Beavers, this weekend played the uh, USC Trojans in a, a late-night game. I say late-night game. It wasn't really late to them, but it was late to me. I think it was a 9, nine o'clock kickoff, maybe 10 o'clock kickoff Eastern time. It was the last game on Saturday night for us to look at, but uh, Oregon State, an awful football team this year and so it didn't come to a surprise it didn't come as a surprise to anybody that USC coming off the loss that they had in Pullman to Washington State the weekend before um, comes in and takes care of business uh, against um, completely takes care of business against USC beats them 38 to 10 the interesting thing from this though is that um, the, the the reports are Oregon State head coach Gary Anderson was fired. Gary Anderson wasn't actually fired. Um, he walked away. He walked away from a $12.1 million buyout. The details are just coming out, Kip, and I'm going to read you a little bit of it. It looks like Gary Anderson, head coach Gary Anderson, was texting over the last six weeks um, a sports reporter by the name of John Canzano from the Oregonian newspaper. And I'm going to read you... Um, I'm going to read you uh, a few of the uh, quotes from uh, Canzano's article that just came out today, Kip. I want to get your thoughts on it. Then we're going to take a 60-second break, and then we'll come back on the other end of the break and talk NFL football. But this is uh, – I'm reading from the OregonianLive.com uh, website, specifically the sports section. This is John Canzano. Gary Anderson walked away on Monday. He threw in the keys, and he tore up a contract with Oregon State that would have paid him $12.6 million in guaranteed compensation over the next four seasons. Why quit, question mark? And why now, question mark? That's become the question to ask, even after the Beavers' disappointing one and five start. And so maybe we should begin with some of his own words sent to me, and this was written by Kenzano, via text over the last six weeks. And Kenzano puts parentheses, and he says, note, Anderson was aware the texts were going to be published, and we communicated on that front today. And Kip, I'm, I don't have time to read all the um, all the texts that were um, that were um, sent to this reporter who covers uh, Oregon State football, the Oregonian. But this is head coach Gary Anderson on September 9th. Quote: Hard place right now. One thing I guarantee you this. The staff needs to figure it out. I ain't going to die doing this expletive. It's on me, and I get that right now. Beaver Nation deserves better. End of the story. September 12th, three days after that text that he sent to the reporter, Anderson says, quote, I have them by the expletive for every penny. No buyout for the next four, not counting this year. But that's not my style. If it does not improve... I will do some crazy shit with my salary so I can pay the right coaches the right money. Eight days later, September 20th, I hired the wrong expletive guys and are still working our way through a bunch of recruiting years that stunk. It's year three. 
if these expletives can't get it right, I will not just say fire them and start over. That's not the way to go about it. If I expletive it up that bad, I will take the bullet and ride off into the sunset. I will stay old school. I will not die doing this expletive. Stay tuned. Kip, have you ever wow. seen something so strange for a that for a head coach of a of a um, of a Power Five conference? It was almost like a self fulfilling prophecy that he started on September first, knowing that he either didn't have the talent or um, or wasn't going to be able to pull off what he had. I don't know that I can ever see anything. I don't know that I can ever remember anything like this in college football. Give me your thoughts on Gary Anderson and his departure from Oregon State. It, it, I, I, I wish. Uh, I mean, he, he really could have completed it a lot better if he'd had a horse standing by and actually ridden off out of the stadium because – uh, that's what it sounds like. Um, th- this is something out of a out of a B-roll Western movie kind of a script. Um, yeah. Wow, you know, I I had not gotten to read the tweets. I was aware that that had come out, but I had not been able to, or the text, I should say, I had not been able to get to that uh, today. And and uh, but that is just astounding. Uh, that that is beyond any expectation I have of what I was going to read. So. Um, what a bizarre situation, and and to uh, confide in a reporter and and understand that those were going to be published um, is, is is really we're, we see in politics all the time these guys that think they're speaking off the record, but apparently this was very much on it. So this this is this is kind of a uh, a, a, a step over to what we see in politics uh, here in recent yep. times with uh, some of these guys imploding and talking to the people they shouldn't be talking to. But obviously, Anderson wanted it to be well chronicled as he contemplated, uh, as he said, riding off into the sunset. And apparently, that's what he's done. It is. And I, and I tell you, I wonder, um, the, the reporter doesn't go into it, into his story. But for anybody listening, I would encourage you to go on to OregonLive.com. Go to the sports section. It's the top news story in the sports section. You know, I'm curious as to what parameters were on that type of communication between a head coach and a reporter. If Anderson said, look, um, you know, I will, uh, I will communicate with you as much as I can so long as it's either, quote, embargoed, meaning you're not allowed to use the information so long as I'm still the head coach at Oregon State. Um, but it certainly looked like from reading those texts, and, and Kip, I just took uh, a few of the texts, there are, are yeah. quite a bit more that I just didn't have time to get into, and they all they all kind of followed the same thematic, and so I would encourage people to go in and do it. It certainly looks like Anderson um, probably knew that he, he couldn't turn it around, and uh, he was getting ahead of the story about six weeks ahead. If that's the case, pretty fascinating, really, because uh, you know what do you do if you actually do end up turning it around? Your your team does well. And then you go, you know, you got to go trust a reporter that, hey, man, look, that was embargoed until I left, but it looks like I'm going to stick around for a couple of years, so you can't use that? I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of uh, discussions with reporters over the years uh, in my capacity in politics. I've, I've been on the record. I've been off the record. I've been on background. 
And um, uh, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like that. I don't, I don't, I don't know in the future, Kip. I really want to be reading my texts on a uh, on a news article like that. But certainly looked like Gary Anderson oh. knew what he was getting himself into. Uh, Kip, we're going to take a sixty second break, and uh, on the other end of the break, we are going to be welcomed uh, after a two week hiatus. We're going to be welcomed by the Savage Bun, Mr. Steve All Butler. Right, Steve and then, back. Kip, I don't know that it's a coincidence or not, but after two straight wins, the Buffalo Bad Boy uh, joins the podcast. After this week's Buffalo loss, the Buffalo Bad Boy is nowhere to be found. We can't find it. We're about to put out a missing re- missing persons report on him. Just kidding, Kip. Uh, Pete said he had a conflict that I couldn't make on. But uh, but the Buffalo Bills lost, and uh, we were going to bring that up. We will, out of respect for the bad boy, we're only going to talk about it just a little bit. But everybody stick with us for 60 seconds. We'll be back talking NFL football, Red Zone Sports. game, nationally televised game. 
Uh, it was certainly uh, Falcons had an off weekend this weekend, Steve, as you know. So there was no Atlanta Falcons football to watch in the Atlanta media market. And so uh, the game that I sat down and, and watched was uh, Green Bay and Dallas. And, uh, Steve, tell us a little bit. Give us your, your thoughts on that game. I mean, uh, certainly looked at the at the beginning like the Cowboys might have it under control. They were up 21-13 to 13 at halftime and then uh, only three points scored in the third quarter. That was a field goal by Mason Crosby. And then 30 points scored in the fourth quarter in this football game. And um, Green Bay comes back and wins 35-31. Uh, my brother-in-law, Todd, uh, was over at the house. Uh, we had uh, had some family over for dessert. We were all watching the game, and uh, we both looked at each other when Dak Prescott went in with about a minute, five seconds left, and we both looked at each other and said, he left too much time on the clock. He should have taken <laughs> a knee at the one-yard line. Um, all, all Green Bay needed, and I was just talking about sending the game into overtime. All they needed to send it into overtime was a field goal. But you give Aaron Rodgers a minute and five seconds, and, um, and uh, you know, he's going to do what he did to Dallas on the road. Steve, give us your thoughts on uh, Packers-Cowboys. Well, you've seen the same thing all year long. If you notice, Dallas jumps out to a big lead. They have a pretty good first half. It's because they have no depth on defense. They have no secondary. So when it gets to that part of the game where you need depth and you need people that can cover, they just can't do it. So I, don't, I think you're going to see this happen a lot. They've got a lot of offensive tools. They, they can jump out to a lead, but they don't have the kind of defense that can protect the lead. And so it's really been the case now for quite a few years with Dallas. And, and I think, obviously, they, you know, Jason Garrett does a very poor job of managing the game in the fourth quarter. That's been well documented. Ever since he's been a head coach, he's really never progressed in that area. Um, and I don't think he's had pressure to progress from Jerry Jones. Or, quite frankly, if Jerry doesn't like something, he lets you know. And so he clearly has not made himself known about how he wants the end of games to be managed. And, and between the lack of talent and a coach that really has not proven – to know what he's doing, I think you'll see this continue. Indeed. Kip, give us your thoughts on Green Bay Dallas. Yeah, you guys have said most of uh, the pertinent points, but uh, I thought the uh, the second down call of trying to throw a touchdown pass when they were having great success with Elliott running the football, uh, I guess they were probably at the 13 or 14-yard line. Uh, Elliott picked up six or seven yards. It was second and three, I think. They try to uh, they try to go in the end zone and it's incomplete, stopping the clock with about a minute thirteen to go. And to me, that was just you're only down a field goal. The absolute worst case scenario is uh, you know you give the Elliott the ball two more times, you run another almost a minute off the clock, and you know worst case scenario if Green Bay does manage to stuff him and prevent him from getting a first down, then you kick a field goal and tie the game. But uh, that second down pass play is, is, is just the underline five times of Steve's point that managing the game down the stretch and not giving Aaron Rodgers the chance to beat you because if he's given the chance, he's usually going to get it done. And the run he made, the scramble he made, was such an athletic play. I think that's underappreciated. We always talk about Rodgers' elusiveness and, and his ability to keep a play alive. But I'm telling you, that was a that was an athletic play that was awe-inspiring uh, on the third and long when he uh, managed to escape the pass rush and uh, took advantage of going down the sidelines. Uh, he, he really demonstrated 
um, you know, just his sheer will to, to win a game and, and do what's necessary. And, and uh, boy, he added to his legend, which was already considerable. He certainly did. Steve, Mr. Savage Burn, I didn't think on this week's podcast that we would be talking about a game, an NFL game, between two winless teams. The, uh, the Los Angeles Chargers, and yes, it's still very difficult to say Los Angeles Chargers. I still find myself on many occasions saying San Diego. Uh, go to uh, New York to face the Giants, another 0-4 team. And I, I just can't, I mean, I don't know, Steve, that I've ever seen a game quite like this. Um, not only were the New York football Giants a hapless offense coming into the game, but they lost four wide receivers in the game. And not just four wide receivers. Odell Beckham is gone for the year with a fractured Mm. ankle. They lose Brandon Marshall, who's gone for the year. They lose Dwayne Harris, who's gone for the year. They lost Sterling Shepard in the game, although it does look like Sterling Shepard is going to come out. Have you ever seen something as bizarre as a team losing Three wide receivers in one football game, Steve. No, I haven't. And their whole season is just weird. Um, <laughs> from the interaction of their coaching staff and their players and Elon Manning, and they can't run the football, it, lots of turnovers. It's, it, there's just too many problems for the Giants to probably overcome this season or in the near future. you got to really ask yourself if they're going to blow this whole thing up and pretty soon kind of – do a restart like you're seeing in Buffalo or even saw the Falcons uh, do a few years back. But um, it ended up being a pretty entertaining football game. I mean, towards the end, it was fun to watch. Um, I I did get a chance to see the fourth quarter. I did not watch the whole game. Um, But when you look at the stat line and some of the other things that happened, it seemed like, um, you know, there was two 0-4 football teams fighting for their first win. It was about a good summary. It was. Kemp, if I had told you five weeks into the NFL season – that one New York football team was 0-5 and, and one was 2-3, and three. <laughs> you probably wouldn't guess that the New York Jets were 2-3. and three. You, you probably wouldn't guess that the New York Giants would be 0-5. But, Kip, I'm about to read you the current depth chart of New York Giants wide receivers. And uh, I, I had to take a second look as I was prepared for the show, just thinking, you know, this offense – wasn't really good at all. In fact, they were they were bad before all these injuries. But going into next week's game, here's the depth chart at wide receiver for the New York Giants. Their number one receiver is Roger Lewis. I thought he held the world record in the mile. Um, I thought he was tracking the field. Then you have Traveris King, Travis Rudolph, and Darius Poe. I thought Darius Poe played NBA basketball. Kip, how much trouble are the New York football Giants in? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I'm glad you read me that depth chart because my first thought when we uh, when we reviewed all the receivers being out, I said, gosh, i got to see who the Giants have left. Uh, maybe I can uh, get a get a steal in the in the fantasy football ranks. But, boy, that list, uh, that, 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 that is woeful, the definition of the word. Also, one quick correction. Our New York football Jets are even better than you. Uh, you may have just uh, got them inverted. The New York Jets are three and two. They have a winning record. That's They're right, Kip. Thank you for the correction. Streak. That's right. They are they are three yeah. and two after yeah. many after many predicted they could go winless. Thank you for the correction. 
No problem. Of course, they've they've overwhelmed three juggernaut offenses: the uh, the Miami Dolphins in a shutout, the enigmatic uh, Jacksonville Jaguars, and then of course they subdued the Cleveland Browns this past week. But uh, the Giants' situation. I mean, this I, I can't remember an NFL team in recent memory that has uh, just been subjected to the 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 the, the just absolute. Uh, train wreck effect that this team has, and it's, gosh, if you're uh, if if you're a giant fan, I mean, wh- where do what do you take what do you take consolation in? I mean, with that cast of characters you just reeled off, and I said a couple weeks ago here on the show that uh, the stable of running backs they went into the season with to me was an yeah. absolute puzzler. Um, and you know, still I thought is. Perkins yeah. was the owner. Yeah, I thought Perkins was the owner of a restaurant. So, uh, on on your same vein with the, some of those other players, but uh, this team is just uh, as as a disaster of a situation as I can ever recall in the NFL. Oh, you're exactly right, Steve. Mister Savage Burn. I'm trying to figure out this Jacksonville Jaguars team. If you talk about a schizophrenic football team, I don't know that five games into the season that I've ever seen a football team with such multiple personalities. They opened the season with a very convincing 29-7 win against the Houston Texans. Then um, uh, then at home, they lay an egg against the Tennessee Titans and lose by 20 points. Uh, then they go across the pond to London, and they absolutely destroy the Baltimore Ravens 44-7. to Then they come back and lose to the New York Jets, who now all of a sudden, let's give them a little bit of credit. They're 3-2. and two. They're not as bad as we thought, but at the time we didn't know. And, and now they go, they go to Pittsburgh, and they beat the Steelers 30-9. to nine. So this Jacksonville Jaguars team is 3-2. and two. And what made that game so very interesting, of course, the Steelers are 3-2 and two too, but Ben Roethlisberger became the first quarterback in NFL history to have 55 pass attempts and yet not have a touchdown pass and have five interceptions. No quarterback in the history of NFL football has ever thrown the ball 55 times, not had a touchdown pass, and had five interceptions what in the world is going on with the Pittsburgh Steelers, Steve? And conversely, what are we supposed to make out of these Jacksonville Jaguars? You know, listen, I, I told you what to make out of them our first episode. I, they're going to win the division. <laughs> they're a pretty yep. good football team. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago before my, my back hiatus. Um, that If you've got a defense like that and you can run a football, you can win in the NFL. There's just not that many good quarterbacks right now, and you're not going to run into other teams that have star quarterbacks. And in their division especially, I mean, Deshaun Watson, Mariota is is not on the field enough and is hurt again. Um, Listen, the Jacksonville Jaguars lead the NFL in rushing at 165 yards a game. There's nothing schizophrenic about their performances. The only schizophrenia they have is that quarterback, and he's going to vary from week to week. But their defense and their rushing attack will stay consistent, and I think they're going to win this division easily. I mean, you look at the problems, especially with J.J. Watt out in Houston. I'm sure some people were kind of thinking Houston might have a shot now. Well, that just got squashed. Um, Indianapolis is horrid. Um, I, I just don't see that how they can be challenged in this division as long as they're going to run the ball for 180 yards a game in the NFL. 
they're they're only attempting like 18 passes and 167 yards a game passing. I don't think they care what Blake Bortles does as long as their defense can keep a, the other team to under 20 points. Yeah, Kip, Steve brings up a very good point. He brings up the fact that, you know, uh, and I forget exactly the words you use, Steve, but that it's, uh, you know, that it's kind of a quarterback light league right now, and he's exactly right. I'm going to read the uh, – I'm going to read, Kip, the first two paragraphs of an article that Robert Mays, I believe Robert Mays, uh, um, I believe he writes for 247 Sports. I hope that's the case. That's what I'm crediting him for. But he had an article that came out yesterday. I'm going to read you the first couple paragraphs of the article to get both of your thoughts on it. Um, The upper echelon of NFL's quarterback hierarchy has included many of the same names for roughly a decade now. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and Drew Brees have been fixtures atop the list. The 2004 draft class, which included Eli Manning, Philip Rivers, and Ben Roethlisberger, has slotted a tier just below them. Each wave of young passers has featured a talented up-and-comer or two, but for the most part, players like Andrew Luck and Russell Wilson have fallen somewhere in that second tier as well, among the more familiar established presences at that position. With week five of the season in the books, It feels like that hierarchy, outside of the top tier, populated by the likes of Brady and Rodgers, is more in flux than at any point in recent memory. Andrew Luck has yet to play a game this fall as he recovers from off-season shoulder surgery. Budding stars Marcus Mariota and Derek Carr are both injured and watched from the sidelines Sunday as their offense has struggled get much of anything going without him. And mainstays like Roethlisberger, who tossed a career-high five interceptions this weekend, and Eli Manning, whose Giants fell to 0-5 after his 27-22 loss to Rivers and the Chargers, and Carson Palmer, who's thrown six touchdown passes and five picks in the Cardinals' two and three starts, have disappointed. More than a month into the 2017 season, it's the names we didn't expect that have the headliners so far. And I'm not going to continue to read the entire article, but he goes on to mention guys like Jared Goff and Deshaun Watson and Carson Wentz. Um, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about it until I really started um, – and really until I read the article, until I read Robert May's article. He's exactly right. We are going through a transition time with NFL quarterbacks, and with that transition time – I don't know that I have. I can remember an NFL season this far into the season in Week Five where we have so much parity. It was only four weeks into the three weeks into the season. Think about this: three weeks into the season, we only had two undefeated teams, the Atlanta Falcons and the Kansas City Chiefs. And then after Week Four, it was just the Kansas City Chiefs. Kip, your thoughts on uh, on, on all that? Really, I'm kind of throwing a lot at you: the quarterback situation, the parity in the NFL. Well, I mean, uh, my first my first thought because I had not seen that article. My my first reaction is, uh, I, I I know Steve is thinking this. Uh, where where was Matt Ryan mentioned in that article? Uh, yeah. it, it didn't sound like he was even even mentioned in the second tier. And also, if anybody watched the game uh, on Sunday night, uh, Alex Smith has uh, has has risen to the point of of playing just remarkably well. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I think those guys need to be in the discussion as well, and they are leading to arguably of the of the best teams in the league. The Chiefs still the only undefeated team. 
but I, I think the point of the article is absolutely correct. Uh, we, we are seeing a changing of the guard. Certainly Rivers, Manning, and Roethlisberger, I would argue, are not even in that second tier anymore. I think they've dropped down collectively to another level, uh, getting some age on them, lack of mobility. Of course, uh, Roethlisberger and Rivers have always been big and strong enough to uh, you know, repel a lot of the pass rush and still make plays, but uh, they, they definitely have slipped a notch. And uh, I, you know, it, it's it is a, it is a different era and a different time. Uh, mobility of quarterbacks is is certainly a lot more emphasized now. So uh, the point's well taken, but it, it is funny when you when you put it in those kind of terms that the uh, the upper echelon hierarchy of quarterbacks has been pretty much uh, unchanged for a long time. And uh, Tom Brady, let's face it, he's 41 years old. Um, you know, Drew Brees is, is, is certainly getting up in age as well. So um, th- there needs to be somebody to come to the throne. I guess my final thought is that there are a lot of teams, though, with some really sketchy uh, starting quarterbacks uh, still, I mean, there's, there's to me just a just a, a, a abundant quarterback shortage. Uh, about about a third of the teams in the league are being piloted by guys like Hoyer and McCown and and these kind of journeymen, you know, just mediocre quarterbacks in my mind. And uh, so the quarterback position is is really a, a fascinating topic right now. It is, and Steve, I want to get your thoughts on that article as well. In fairness to Robert Mays, he does go on to mention Tom Brady later in the article, but didn't have time to read the entire article. But, Steve, I want to get your thoughts on the parity in the NFL, the quarterback situation. But before you answer, I have very good news. I have very good news for Atlanta football fans and fantasy football fans. Um, My fantasy football team, which is doomed, it always is. That's why for years it was the all-ACL team. Uh, until I changed it to the Patriots ball boys. But uh, I drafted Danny Woodhead, I drafted Darren Sproles, I drafted Odell Beckham, and I drafted Matt Ryan. So um, um, with all due respect to Matt Ryan, I traded Matt Ryan this past week for Drew Brees. I think I traded Matt Ryan and T.Y. Hilton for Drew Brees and Martavius Bryant. It probably wasn't a trade, Steve, that I would have done um, if I was simply looking out for the best interest of my fantasy football team. But, Steve, I want you to know I had more in mind when I executed that trade. I had the Atlanta football fan base. I did not want to jinx <laughs> Matt Ryan and put the weight on his shoulder as being the starting quarterback for the Patriots Ball Boys ACL team. So uh, Matt Ryan is now on another team. It has been a bye week. The Atlanta Falcons had a bye week. And I hope Matt Ryan, as a result of not being on my fantasy football team, can recover, can finally get some synergy with Sark and start doing better. And if he does, I'm going to be the first guy to say, I'm proud of him, I'm glad he did it, and I'm glad he traded him. Steve, your thoughts? Well, a couple of things. One, there's a lot of holes in that article. Um, If he's going to address the situation, he missed a lot of the highlights. And I agree. Obviously, I, I brought it up that there's just been this transition between um, the, the other, the older generation of quarterbacks, and there really hasn't been many people to step up and fill it. In fact, if you were to take a look at the young quarterbacks to step up and fill it, Jared Goff has probably done the best job this season uh, of doing that. And I don't think any of us thought we'd be able to say that this year. Um, but I am going to say, you know, just one real quick. There's one top tier of quarterbacks. 
Tom Brady is playing as well as he ever has this year. It's the worst football yeah. team he's ever been on, maybe in New England. It's horrible football team, um, and yeah. comparatively speaking to what they've had there before. But anybody that's watched him play right now, I don't care if he's forty-one or not, he, he is playing the best quarterback in the league. Period. I mean, he's really yeah. tore it up. Drew Brees has been razor sharp, razor sharp. He's another four-year-old guy. Uh, Matt Ryan has had two bad games, and that's half the season. So he's certainly not been in his MVP status. But those three guys and Aaron Rodgers are in a, a different category all by themselves right now. Um, they've proven and shown the ability to do it in the playoffs and to win big games and to put it on their shoulders. And other than those four guys, and Alex Smith is this season starting to show that, but he's got he's to show that for more than five games for me. I, I like Alex, but he's been in the league for 15 years, and, and he's shown some good moments, but he's never been able to sustain it. Um, so we've seen no, him a good first eight games. Yeah. We've seen him do this like several times and fade every yeah. single time. So if he can do it for all season this year, I'll buy in. Otherwise, we're looking at four legitimate star quarterbacks. Matt Stafford has really improved, so let's give him credit. Cam Newton has looked that way the last two weeks. I don't think that's going to last, though, if they're going to average 28 rushing yards a game. There's no way that's going to last. And lastly, Kirk Cousins out of the real young quarterbacks is probably the best of that, you know, 26, 27 um, your old range. I, I can't think of another guy his age that's probably better than him. Um, but other than that, we're looking at a league that's going to face a crisis. And I'll go back to that Steve Young commentary that I've mentioned many times, how the 2005 CBA limited practice cut it in half, and the quarterback yeah. position has never been the same. That's a great and, point. And, Steve, and I don't know that – I'm glad you brought that up. I, I don't know that I can remember this many injuries, too. I mean, these guys can't go full contact much anymore anyway. And look how many injuries we've had so far in the season. We haven't even talked about J.J. Watt going down. And, look, I'm not going to blame J.J. Watt or Odell Beckham's injuries specifically on the, the CBA, but it, it does seem like when, when all the all the full contact you get is on Sundays, um, your body's not used to it if it only goes through it once a week. So, you know, uh, I know they can practice in full pads, maybe a practice and a half, but you're you're exactly right. Um, Kip, you Steve had mentioned uh, Cam Newton. Yeah, go ahead, Steve, finish it up. Uh, I was just going to say one last thing. To your point, Chip, and I, and I played football for a long time, you've got to condition your body for that kind of punishment. And if you're yeah. going to do it just 16, 17 times a year, Oh man, it's it's like being in a car wreck. So um, I don't know whether it's helping their bodies or hurting them. It's it's hard to tell. Steve, it is hard to tell. I have to. I'm 44 years old. I have to condition my body to play two rounds of golf a week. You know, that so me. I mean, I <laughs> I can't fathom what these guys are doing playing full contact NFL football like they are. Kip, Steve had mentioned Cam Newton. What a game Cam Newton had. I mean, what a disastrous week it was for Cam Newton last week. He committed the unforgivable sin, um, and he went where he shouldn't have gone, and that is uh, a female sports reporter from the Charlotte Observer who who covers uh, the Carolina Panthers for the paper was asking him a question about routes, and Cam Newton said something to the effect of, um, you know, I've I find it odd that a female is asking me questions about running routes. Uh, you would think that Cam Newton would know better than that. Uh, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He had a very sincere apology. It certainly looks like, at least right now, he knows 
better than that, and I don't think it's going to happen again. But I tell you, um, that Detroit Lions team, pretty good football team. And, uh, you know, Cam Newton went in there, and as Steve said, not a running game at all. He went in and took that game over, and uh, Carolina ends up uh, uh, winning by a field goal against Detroit. Your thoughts this weekend on Cam Newton, the Carolina Panthers, and the game against the Detroit Lions? Well, of all the of all the uh, the season so far, I think this last two week stretch by the Panthers going to New England and then following up and going to Detroit, a team that was pretty much on a roll. I mean, arguably they would. Uh, I mean, Detroit lost the game to the Falcons on the controversial goal line play. Um, or, you know, it looked like they had scored the winning touchdown, and and uh, then they go to Minnesota and and hold the Vikings to just a touchdown. So the Lions were on a big-time roll. So for the the Panthers to go on the road two weeks in a row, and any time in the NFL you win back-to-back road games, that's pretty impressive. And uh, to win at those two venues, Cam Newton really shined. And, and as you mentioned, uh, that was following a week of just swirling controversy. And like you said, he went someplace that you just can't go. Um, don't don't diss a female reporter or uh, the wrath of you know what's going to come and, and, and bite you. And he's faced that. And and like I say, I I, I like to think that maybe uh, after all of the, uh, the the turbulence that Cam's had in terms of dealing with the media, you would hope he would uh, get to the point where he wouldn't make that kind of error. But um, it seems like uh, Cam's one of those guys that uh, sometimes his mouth. Uh, gets a little bit ahead of his brain and it's it it, it gets him in trouble I, I i can't remember you guys might remember that somebody on the quote that uh i can't believe that, uh, that that some reporter i think said i can't believe that cam newton is is uh making fun of a woman's football knowledge when he dresses like one um so i, 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 I <laughs> so poor cam but but from a football wow. standpoint, yeah, from a football standpoint, he doesn't really have many weapons, and look what he's doing. I mean, that, that's yeah. an extraordinary two-week stretch. He lost Greg Olson, his security blanket, early on in the season. I mean, uh, Funches has emerged as his, as his go-to receiver. Uh, he doesn't have exactly a uh, – McCaffrey has, has given them a little bit more diversity, but he's certainly not a superstar yet in the National Football League by any means. And Jonathan Stewart – is I, I think in his 41st season, he's not very effective. So I have been extremely impressed with what Cam's done these last two weeks, and I'm anxious to see if he can keep it going. Uh, absolutely. Steve, Mr. Savageburn, you had mentioned earlier, and I couldn't agree with your assessment more about the season that Tom Brady is having uh, at the age of 41. Just, uh, just incredible. Um, maybe one of the better seasons he's ever had. Um, they go in for a very rare Thursday night game this past week uh, down to Tampa to take on the Buccaneers and take care of business. Um, th- this, too, even though it was a 19-14 to 14 football game, it never really seemed like a football game to me like New England was in danger of losing. You look at the, the, you look at the stats from the game. Somehow, Jameis Winston goes 26 of 46 for 334 yards, and and they rush for 90 yards. So they put up well over 400 yards of total offense, and, and they managed to only put up 14 points. Um, we were talking just last week on the podcast that one of the reasons I thought 
this New England team was as vulnerable as maybe any other New England team we've seen in recent memory is because the defense was as bad as any New England team I've ever seen. Boy, I tell you, that changed a little bit in about four days. I mean, uh, you talk about Ben don't break. Pretty big road win for the New England Patriots. Uh, two and two coming into the game. Tampa, of course, had that game one game against Miami that uh, that uh, was canceled because of Hurricane Irma. So they were two and one coming into the game. But it's not like Jameis Winston put up bad numbers. Doug Martin only ran 13 times for 72 yards, but uh, New England comes away with a victory, 19 to 14. I tell you, um, for those uh, people who. Uh, who want to see the Patriots do poorly, and you can put me in that category. This was not a game I wanted to see with such a good performance in the New England defense. Yeah, I kind of – I mean, I see a ton of holes in this team, and I understand there's a little bit of hope from this performance. But if you've watched the Patriots play throughout the season, man, they got problems. Um, They've got real problems. And, and Tom Brady is, I think, performing as well as I've ever seen him, especially given uh, the circumstances. So um, and their division is light. I mean, that's really been one of the, the saving graces for New England is that they have forever been in a very bad division. And quite frankly, the, the NFC South, I, I think, is a little bit worse than people thought it might be, too. Tampa Bay, I don't think it's overwhelmed anybody yet, right? Um, so right. we'll see as the season progresses and, and if, if they can hold up as thin as they are on defense, it's kind of like the Cowboys situation. Uh, can they hold on to leads and, and can they protect what they have, even if Tom Brady gives it to them? But if Tom Brady keeps playing this way, uh, New England's in every single football game they play, I think it's going to be interesting as banged up as, as the Falcons are and, and as many you know, issues as the Patriots have, what this next game is going to look like. Agreed. And, uh, Steve, let me get your thoughts on one more thing before we take a 60-second break and come back and uh, we go through our winners and losers segment for the week in sports. But uh, I can't believe it took us, uh, what, 40 minutes into the NFL uh, portion of the podcast to talk about the Buffalo Bills this past week. And I would notice, I noted (laughs) before we went to break, that we are not joined this week by the Buffalo bad bad boy, Mr. Pete Tasca. He has a, quote, conflict this week. Now, I I, I don't second guess the bad boy's conflict. He's a very busy man. He's a family man. And and, and so I I don't doubt his conflict, Steve. However, I will point out that they they were 3-1 and this weekend with the possibility of being on the verge of going 4-1 and until they ran into the <coughs> the mighty Cincinnati <coughs> Bengals, and they go into Cincinnati with an opportunity to be four and one, and well, um, they blew it. Steve uh, end up losing twenty to sixteen. Uh, very lackluster performance. It certainly wasn't the Buffalo Bills that you and I saw, Steve, uh, the weekend before at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. What are we supposed to make of this Bills team, Steve? Um, you know, I, I don't know. They kind of look the same to me. I mean, it's around 16 to 20 points, right? There's not much difference yeah. there. They grind the football. The only thing that, that that was different in this game is that they couldn't run the football. That was it. No, they couldn't. They, they only turned the ball over one time. But they only averaged 3.4 yards of rushing against the Falcons. It was around 5.4. So it's real easy once you kind of peel back the onion. If Buffalo can run the football, they can win any football game they play because their defense is still ranked first in the NFL. Um, and, and I think they will be throughout the season because the, the vision they're playing is so bad. 
and even the Patriots like, are probably the worst they've been in a decade. So, um, long story short, you know, it, it's it's interesting to uh, debate whether or not that the Buffalo could win the division. I think they still could because of their defense. Because at the end of the day, with all these bad offenses, except for Tom Brady, um, because they don't have a whole lot of receivers there in New England, that could get really thin uh, as well. But it, with all those bad offenses, the best defense might win the division. Yeah, and I tell you, Steve, uh, I'm going to throw the penalty flag on myself when I talk about the Bills because, uh, um, you know, I really thought Zay Jones, I thought he was one of the biggest playmakers in this year's draft. I thought he was a steal in the second round uh, when Buffalo got him out of East Carolina. And uh, what a bust he's been so far. I I know that's not a a huge passing offense. I know Tyrod Taylor is is uh, maybe not the quarterback you want throw. Okay, he's a good piece, but he might not be the quarterback you want throwing to you if you're going to put up big numbers. But you know, through five games, you know Zay Jones has five catches. Are you kidding me? What a bust, man! At least so far, uh, this kid, um, you know, th- this kid broke an NCAA receptions record at East Carolina. A huge playmaker. I got it. East Carolina didn't play a lot of folks, but. You know, uh, Mississippi Valley State didn't play a lot of folks either, and Jay, Jerry Rice ended up being okay. But uh, what a bust so far. So flag on me. He was a uh, dark horse for Rookie of the Year. Um, I don't know that that's quite moving in the direction that it needs to go for Jay jo- Zay Jones to get any votes. Hope he does. He's a good kid. Hope, uh, hope he and Tyrod Taylor can get some synergy together. Folks, we're going to take a 60-second break. When we get back, we are going to start – with the Savage Burn, Steve Butler to give us his winners and losers in the week in sports. Then Kip's going to give it to us. Then I'll give you my winners and losers. Then we'll wrap up, and we'll see you next week. But 60-second uh, break, and we'll be back on the Red Zone Sports Report. Savage Burn, Mr. Steve Butler. Steve, give us your winners and losers for the week in sports. Well, I'm going to kind of surprise you here, Chip, because I've given this one individual a very hard time for a couple of years since his pitiful press conference after the Super Bowl. But my winner of the week is going to be Cam Newton. It's really for the month of October. He has been on fire and pretty much won both these games against New England and Detroit on his own. The defense was giving up big plays. They couldn't run the football. And Cam did what he hadn't done in two years, really. 
he put the whole team on his back, and, and he had a big smile on his face and let him down the football field. So Cam Newton is going to be my winner of the week. My loser of the week is the entire Red Zone Sports Report. I decided to look up total QBR of all NFL quarterbacks, and would you like to hear the top three in the NFL this year? Deshaun Watson. Give it to me, Stevie B. Deshaun Watson is number one. Dak Prescott is number two, and Carson Wentz is number three. We were just talking about how there's no quarterbacks in the NFL to take the mantle, and the top three ranked quarterbacks in the NFL have all been in the league less two years or less. I'm going to get the Red Zone Sports Report, the loser of the week. I love it, baby. I love it. We got some new blood coming in. It's damn time we had new blood coming in. It's going to be good for the NFL, and it's going to be even better for fantasy football. Sure. Kip Kiefer, your winners and losers for the week in sports. Well, I'm still a little wounded from being being the complicit as the loser of the week, but but I unfortunately that's probably deserved. So I, I will take my medicine and move forward. I'm going to give it to, to all, three guys that, on one team, uh, and that's the Houston Astros who eliminated the Boston Red Sox and are waiting for the winner of the Yankees and Indians. Uh, Jose Altuve, this is a guy that's not talked about enough. Uh, this guy is five foot five. He had three home runs in the first playoff game. I mean that's Babe Ruth esque, and this guy is just a is just a tiny little guy who is just a phenomenal player that uh, that I don't think gets enough uh, credit. I mean I know I know that uh, he's got a really good chance to win the MVP, and I think that would be a great thing. I'm also uh, going to give kind of co honors on the Astros to AJ Hinch, the manager, and Justin Verlander, the late season acquisition. Um, A.J. Hinch did what I always want to see from a manager, and so few are willing to do it. Uh, Joe Madden did last year for the Cubs, which arguably is how they won the World Series. You've got to manage completely different in the postseason. And all, as Atlanta sports fans, what we watched year after year, despite Bobby Cox being, by all measures, one of the greatest managers in the history of the game, uh, he just could not break the patterns in the postseason of doing things differently. And I love that A.J. Hinch called for Justin Verlander, who admitted uh, in, in game four he wanted to get it over with. He, he was slated to be the starter in game five, but he ran him out there in relief. Verlander said he hadn't pitched in relief since Little League, which I think is really a, a great comment. But I like that, uh, that damn the torpedoes, pull out all the stops, let's end the series and, uh, and move on here. So I, I really give the Astros a lot of props. Quick honorable mention, both my sons tonight in Las Vegas, a community that really needs a boost, are at the first ever Golden Knights game, the NHL debuting tonight for the first time in Las Vegas. They're at the game, and I can't wait to get their reports on the, the atmosphere, and particularly with the horrific events of a week ago. Uh, I know it's going to be an emotional night in Las Vegas. Um, as far as loser is concerned, a lot of candidates here. I'm, I'm going to say uh, Major League Baseball, just because, again, with the, with the postseason schedule, particularly games slotted on weekends right in the teeth of the, the bulk of the football schedule, they had early games Saturday and Sunday um, that went against a, a major football competition. And I, 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 I'm sorry, you know, baseball, I know that, uh, that, that you really uh, want to be in, in weekend positions, and I understand that. 
But baseball would be just a lot better off to uh, go ahead and load up their games during the weekdays and just, you know, don't com- don't compete with football because the the playoffs are fantastic and they get lost in that environment. So I, I just wish some innovative thinking would be done for, uh, at the Major League Baseball executive level. Good winners and losers, Kip, in the weekend sports. My winner in the weekend sports is none other than Kyle Kemp. I'd be lying to you if I said I had heard of this kid last week when we did the Winners and Losers. Who is Kyle Kempt? Well, he comes from a deep sports background. His father, Michael, played linebacker at Montana State. His mother, Marlene, was a heptathlete at Montana State. His oldest brother, Cody, played football at Oregon. And his youngest brother, Jake, is currently playing football at Dayton. Who is Kyle Kempt? Well... He was, until last week, the backup quarterback at Iowa State. Kyle Kemp, who is a redshirt senior at Iowa State, uh, last played college football, excuse me, last played organized football, uh, where he got actually in and, and, and saw some game time uh, in for Massillian Washington High School in the state of Ohio in 2012. In 2013, he redshirted at Oregon State. At 2014, it says in his bio that he was, quote, a squad member. At 2015, he was at Hutchinson Community College, where he did not play. And then in 2016 at Iowa State, he was, quote, the offensive scout team player of the year. He played in two games. He was two and two passing for 15 yards. He also had one rush for seven yards. So this kid in the last five years up until this weekend had seen action in two football games, which he threw two passes, and he rushed for seven yards. He finds out 24 hours before the game that he is going to be the starting quarterback for the Iowa State Cyclones. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be on the road playing the Oklahoma Sooners ranked at the time at number four in the country, led by Heisman Trophy, possibly favorite candidate, Baker Mayfield. What does Kyle Kemp do? He goes 18 for 24, 343 yards, three touchdowns, and leads his team from behind to a 38-31 to 31 victory. In Norman, my winner of the week, big winner of the week, Iowa State quarterback Kyle Kempt. And this guy's hard to miss. He's 6'5", 225. So it'll be very interesting to see after that performance if Kyle Kempt might follow in um, in the same pathway as another famous Iowa quarterback. Guy by the name of Kurt Warner, who turned out pretty well. Northern Iowa uh, quarterback. My loser of the week, I have two losers for the week. The New York football giants, big losers for the week. Not only do you lose to uh, to uh, a winless, winless San Diego Chargers football team. You lose four wide receivers. You lose four wide receivers in the game. Not their fault. Uh, obviously, it's not your fault when you get injured, but New York football giants, big losers of the week. My second loser of the week, Ben Roethlisberger. Big Ben, uh, the only player in NFL history to have 55 pass attempts resulting in zero touchdowns and five interceptions. Two of those interceptions, uh, pick sixes. And it wasn't like they were playing 
um, a powerhouse defense. Jacksonville defense certainly better this year than they've ever been, but they were playing the Jacksonville Jaguars. So winner of the week, Iowa State backup quarterback Kyle Kemp, who's likely going to be the starting quarterback moving forward, and Ben Roethlisberger and the New York Football Giants. Folks, thanks for listening. Uh, we are running out of time. I want to thank the Savage Burn, Steve Butler, and as always, our college football guru, Mr. Keith Kiefer. Um, our time has flown by as it normally does. What a fascinating week with a tremendous number of storylines in the world of college football, equally number of storylines in NFL football. We didn't even have time to get to half of them. But we will be back at the same place, same time, Red Zone Sports Report, next Tuesday, October 17th, 8.30 Eastern Time. Hope to see you there. Thanks.